everybody, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi and I am your host. Today, my guest is a successful entrepreneur and surfer from the UK. His name is Richard Walton. He's originally from the UK, but has worked all over the world, sometimes in the most remote places. And he's now living the dream in the beautiful climate of Cape Town, South Africa. Richard's story is super inspirational for many reasons. First of all, because he was living a miserable lifestyle in suburban Britain and decided to completely flip his life around. And because of surfing, you'll actually find out how he managed to build and make his startup thrive from the middle of nowhere. Second, because he's a pioneer of remote working, corporate social responsibility and virtual assistance. In fact, way before Tim Ferriss came out with the four hour work week, Richard was busy building an incredible business and helping entrepreneurs take their businesses to the next level. In fact, Richard is the founder of GVI, an e-platform linking volunteers with nonprofits and NGOs around the world, and is the current founder and CEO of a company called A Virtual. It's a successful virtual assistant company based in South Africa. So he shares his story about how and why he created these inspiring companies. In this episode, we'll dive into Richard's exciting life story. He shares some expert advice about running and growing a business, finding talent, finding balance, and getting mentors to move your business to the next level. We also have a quick chat about the empty breaks of Cape Town and how he contemplates surfing with sharks on a permanent basis. So anyway, I'll let Richard do the talking. Please welcome Richard Walton. Richard, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Amy. Oh, you're welcome. It's a thrill to have you on the show. I guess before we start, do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Richard Walton. I'm originally from the UK. I haven't lived there for 20 years. I describe myself as a wandering entrepreneur first and surfer second. Um, I learned surfing at the rather later age of, of 30, actually for health reasons, which I'll go into later. But I now live in the beautiful town of Cape Town in South Africa, in a beautiful uh, little place called Nordhook, which if any surfer's been to um, Cape Town, they'll know of very, very well. I guess my passion is on how to achieve balance in my life in terms of letting me be healthy and fit, spend time with my children, but also love business. Um, starting businesses, I love working with entrepreneurs. And, and I guess to this point in my life, I'm very lucky. I feel right now that that's where my life is set. I feel like I've got quite a good balance between working with entrepreneurs, starting businesses, working on businesses, and spending time with my family and in the water as well. That's excellent. So had you always had a sort of adventurous personality? Because did you grow up in the UK or did you move around when you were little as well? Yeah, I like to think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know if naturally I had an adventurous personality, but my parents certainly did. We were always taken off on adventures, normally to Africa. My mum was from Zimbabwe. So from very young ages, I remember traveling around Zimbabwe, Kenya, Mozambique, um, places like that. And I guess I've always felt very comfortable on the road. And as soon as I hit 18, I was gone. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a wonderful adventure. And my dad was also an entrepreneur. And so I think I, in terms of adventurous, in, in terms of 
kind of my career, I think I think having a, a father who was an entrepreneur was a big help. It didn't seem this scary or odd thing. And I yeah. think you know, a lot of people who do tend to follow their their parents, what they do. So yeah, kind of have been, but it's quite quite odd describing yourself as adventurous. I certainly don't feel that at the age of 45. My lust for adventure, I think is still there, but it feels quite normal to me now. <laughs> so you actually did slog it through university in England, though. You went to Kingston University. What did you do after graduation? So actually, so my kind of lust for, for travel and entrepreneurship started at Kingston. Um, actually, I had a very odd university career. I actually started at Leeds, and then I went to, in my second year, I went to Chicago, to the business school there. And then I came back and spent a year in Edinburgh, and then I finished off at Kingston University. And during that time, um, with a couple of friends, I actually bought a beach in Malawi, which we turned into a backpackers. And we spent all of our, I say bought a beach, it sounds very grand, it cost 400 pounds at the time. And we decided to turn it into a backpackers. And it was actually during the attempt to create a backpackers that I came up with my first business idea, which was one called GBI. And the reason for that is I soon got pretty bored of looking after backpackers, which is pretty much, you know, in, in Lake Malawi, it's a beautiful place, but there's certainly no waves. There's nothing to do. So it pretty much involved lying around in the sand, staring at the, at the sky and not doing a lot else. You can imagine what back, backpackers in Africa get up to, right? And so I started spending a lot of time with the local community there who pretty much were pretty cut off from the rest of Malawi, which in itself is a very poor country. And... I started thinking about the resources that we could bring to the community and actually kind of set up my first company was a volunteer um, travel company. And we bring volunteers from overseas to work in local communities like this. And we were going to start in Malawi. I was going to get rid of the backpacker idea and start running the operations from there. But we decided it was just too risky. You could only, it took two days to get to by boat. Right. Malaria there was, was cerebral malaria and it was pretty hard living actually and we decided as a business venture looking after young people probably wasn't the best idea so um yeah so i was at university at that time but the the idea for gvi was born there and as soon as i finished university i set off to set that up on an island called roatan off the coast of honduras so yeah that's that's how it kind of all started i guess that's amazing and so what does gvi stand for Uh, global vision international right yeah it's now one of the leading it's much more of an educational travel company now. We work with a lot of universities and schools and run their, their trips. So if you want to get 60% of our actual travelers come from the US. So if you want to get, say you're studying marine biology and you want to get college credit for that, you can go and work on one of our bases in Fiji or the Seychelles and actually study there. Um, and at the same time, you're helping local NGOs with their work. And you can take that research back and then get college credit for it as well. So yeah, it's now been running for 20 years. It's got a, probably around 200 employees in about 20 countries around the world. It's still my baby. I started at the age of 23, 24, but I left there five years ago. It was my kind of midlife crisis, I guess. Better than starting to drive a motorbike and fast cars and whatnot, I guess. I didn't want that to be all I'd ever done. So I decided to, to do something else. So I left. I decided Actually, I decided to take a sabbatical. Right. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm going to take a sabbatical for a year so I can think about what I want to do. And she said, um, well, why? And we were living in Cape Town by now. And she said, well, why don't you get a virtual assistant so you can really clear out your mind so you can have that clarity of thinking so you don't have anything else to do. But what a fantastic idea. 
And well, you know, she didn't say a virtual assistant. She said, why don't you get an assistant? And I posted an ad on Gumtree, and it read something like, CEO seeks part-time assistant. But I didn't want them coming into my home where I was working at the time. And I didn't want a full-time person. I didn't know how many hours I wanted. So I put this ad out. This was kind of a month before my sabbatical was meant to start. And I had like 50 applicants from amazing candidates, you know, who lived and worked in London and the costs of which were far, far cheaper than the UK. And so my latest venture was born. You know, I had like a one-day sabbatical. <laughs> and for the last five or six years, I've been growing a company called A Virtual, which is a supplies virtual assistance from Cape Town to predominantly small businesses in the UK, but also kind of English speaking all over Europe. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm really, really passionate about time. Mm. Uh, really, I'm, I'm, I'm actually obsessed with it about, you know, how much time we have. I think it's the most valuable asset we all have. And entrepreneurs, they just work so hard. And they, you know, sometimes, I guess we'll talk about this later, you can burn out, you can let go of your health and all these types of things. And you know, I love the thought of giving people more time. And I also love the fact that our, our model is really attractive to our virtual assistants who work for us because we offer them work from home, flexi hours. And, you know, 95% of them are mothers with young children. And, you know, they... They want to use their skills. They don't want to sit at home looking after the kids all the time. But yet they don't want to go and get necessarily go and get a full-time job and miss their kids growing up. So this is a wonderful opportunity for, for both parties to benefit. That's brilliant. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the last six years. <laughs> and so maybe we could rewind a bit because your story is quite interesting. Like you were working on, on your business, sort of workaholic kind of setup. Yeah. Could you sort of describe what your lifestyle was when you were living in the UK and before you sort of decided to take a new take on your career? Yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I left the UK when I was about 21. So I moved to Roatan in Honduras, where I met my wife. And, you know, business was going well, but I hadn't necessarily developed very good, how should we say it, kind of life habits. I was drinking probably too much. I was a smoker. I didn't really do a lot of exercise. I was overweight. Somehow managed to convince my wife to, <laughs> to marry me despite all of those things. So we met in Honduras, and then we ended up traveling around the world, actually, for four to five years, setting up GBI, which was really cool. Like We lived in the British Virgin Islands for six months, then we went to the Amazon for a while, and it was just really cool, really fun. Um, and we married young, so it was nice to spend um, time together before we had kids. But then my wife got pregnant. I think we were living in Spain at the time, and as you quite often do with your first child, you kind of panic and think that home and family are the answer to to everything so we moved back to England and we moved into a this was so this was after five years of kind of living this amazing adventurous kind of life you know traveling world we moved back in to this tiny terrace house in St Albans and kind of joined the rat race and I started going to the office every day and I was like I'm gonna you know I'm gonna be very sensible and do what everyone else does and it made me very very unhappy I got a lot heavier um drinking more, smoking more, the, the baby was born. And you're, you're meant to be ecstatic with the birth of your first child. And, I, and, you know, I wasn't, and that made me feel even worse. And I remember I went, I had to get life insurance because I was taking out loan for the expansion of the company. And I went to this doctor because they had to sign off, you know, to the life insurance company. And this doctor 
thank God I met him. And he said to me, he said, if you carry on the way you are, he said he'll be dead by the time you're 50. And that's not something the new father wants to hear. So I went back and I spoke to my wife. And I've got a very understanding wife, as you're, you're here in a minute. And we had a two-month-old child. She said, well, what, what did you always want to do? Why didn't you start running or going to the gym? And I was like, I hate all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, we were in Costa Rica, you know, a couple of years ago. And you seem to really like surfing. You know, and he did it like five times. I said, I've always wanted to be a surfer. I love the ocean. And she said, well, well let's move to Costa Rica. And so we packed up with a two-month-old baby. And we moved literally to this wooden hut with a tin roof. When we moved, they had dial-up internet. There was, the nearest bank was two hours away, so you had to drive there and take your cash. There was no ATMs or anything like that. When we got to Costa Rica, we found out my wife was pregnant with our second child. We decided to go there just for six months. We ended up staying for eight years and having three more children. And it was, it was an amazing experience. It taught me that I can grow a successful business without killing myself. I surfed every day, wow. four hours a day in Costa Rica. And back in, it was a place called Santa Teresa, which has become quite popular now. But I mean, there were days when I, I was just the only person in the water. I just couldn't believe it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sit there and look at it and go, this is just not right. And there'd be parrots flying down the beach. And then, I, you know, then I'd come in and I'd work and it worked. Look, you know, the, the business definitely would have grown a lot faster and would have been bigger if I'd been in England. But I would have been a lot less happy and, you know, I wouldn't have spent as much time with my kids and I wouldn't have developed all the the healthy habits that I have now. I'm not saying I'm the picture of good health at all, but, you know, I didn't even understand healthy eating. And, you know, we lived in this community where people are obsessed about, you know, kind of eating well. And yoga was a big part of it, as was meditation and all those things. And it, it rubbed off on me. And as I think most people find, that if you fall in love with surfing, you want to spend as much time in the water as possible. So things like, you know, strength and flexibility and energy become, those become more important to you than necessarily, uh, you know, parting towards two or three o'clock in the morning. So those are things that have stayed with me. And I'm very grateful for that. Towards the end of my time in Costa Rica, I did manage to bring out my almost my whole management team, actually, really? to come to Costa Rica, well, only for a year. That was one of the best years of my life, because I had that kind of combination of lifestyle and business, but also my whole management team there as well. Yeah, it was a, a lot of fun. And there are times that when I'm really, really stressed about work, which I still get, obviously, like everyone, I do sometimes think life would be so much easier in, in Costa Rica. <laughs> It is this kind of place that you can just escape and forget the real world. Oh, yeah. And do you think that that move to Costa Rica sort of, sorry, I don't know how to put this, but for a lot, lots of entrepreneurs who've got their sort of lives established in a quote unquote developed country, sort of are a bit scared of, of moving to the other side of the world, to the middle of nowhere or to some remote place, partly because it's like it means closing part of the company down or s- slowing things down in a company. And I just wondered if that sort of trip to Costa Rica actually sort of, made you have to slow things down or whether that was quite the contrary and, and you actually sort of sped things up for the business how did you manage the sorry this is a terrible question I'm going to ask I'm going to rephrase this it's actually something that's really scary for entrepreneurs is finding the opportunity to slow things down and to actually take yeah. that time out and what were the your sort of techniques to actually achieve that you know I guess moving to Costa Rica forced me to slow things down. Right. So when I started my new business, A Virtual, um, I forgot those lessons and I fell into the trap of scaling a 
working incredibly hard to scale a business. And it, again, made me very unhappy and started developing bad habits. But luckily, I was able to put a stop on that quite quickly. It's really hard. You know, I think all entrepreneurs will know that particularly at the beginning of a business, it can need a huge amount of attention and, and focus. Mm. And, it, and it does need a lot of work. But I think as we all know, if you're not looking after yourself, then you're not coming into the office or sitting down at your computer with the right mindset to make the right decisions. And I certainly am not going to say that I've got by any means all the answers, but I, I'm a lot better now of saying, yes, I know I've got 101 things that I need to do, but I'm still going to go for a surf or I'm going to go and watch my son's cricket match because it's good for me and I'll come into the office happier and I'll make better decisions and my team will see that I'm happier and more positive and that, and that rubs off on them. Hmm. But it's really, it's really, really hard. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously went to the extreme of moving, you know, moving to Costa Rica and I accepted that the business would not grow as fast. Right, right. And I think obviously there are lots of entrepreneurs who accept that in other ways. They, they decide not to grow as fast, spend as much on marketing or, or whatever it is. They're, they're comfortable with a, a slower paced business. I, I have the mindset, I have that addictive personality based on everything in my life that if I see an opportunity, I just, I just obsess and I want to go for it. And, I, and I'm not happy with growing a company 10% a year. I want it to be 100% a year. And, you know, Costa Rica kind of put me back in, in check. Hmm. Saying that, you know, timing is everything. And the business by that time was five years old, six years old. Um, so we'd been through a lot of the hardships. And I had a really, really good team. Hmm. had people that I could trust. And that allowed me to do it. I don't think I could have done it at an earlier stage. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah it does. I, I also have, to have a sort of question about finances, basically, because... Well, in my experience, the sort of taking off and leaving for a sabbatical meant there's no revenue for about six months or the time for your sabbatical and actually planning that time financially. And I was just wondering whether that was something that was part of the equation. But I guess maybe in your case, you had the business that was running and it was already in place and it was sort of ticking whilst you were in Costa Rica and you could bridge that gap. I could. And actually moving to Costa Rica saved a lot of money because, you know, we... We lived literally in a wooden house with a tin roof, which cost $600 a month. And we were you know, paying UK rent and all the other costs. I mean, our, our overheads dropped by 80%. So that was nice. And we stayed there for eight years. And, you know, we had four kids. And, you know, our costs would have been astronomical. And that's money I would have had to, take, had to have taken out of the business. I could, you know, and I spent that money on, on hiring staff to do jobs that I would have done. Yeah. So, you know, it did free up some cash, but I'm not trying to say it was a good financial decision for the business. It wasn't. But yeah, I mean, I think it was for, for me personally. Yeah, what's really interesting, I'd love to sort of go a bit further into this topic, but actually attracting the right people to work with you. You were saying your management team was amazing. Yes. How do you attract really good people to your business? Well, there's an old saying, um, which we talked about earlier, about you should always hire people more intelligent than yourself, which is true, very true, and not too difficult, not too difficult for me in terms of finding people more intelligent than myself. That, you know, the problem is that, you know, in my experience, the top, top people are either attracted to top leaders with a track record, which I didn't have, mm-hmm. or they're attracted to the kind of the, the culture slash lifestyle. And also the vision, you know, what, what are you actually doing? So GBI was 
a social enterprise, uh, still is, and it was kind of a social enterprise before even the term was really coined. So we were actually able to attract a lot of people who would you know, take 50% cuts in, the, in, their, in their salary to come and work for us because they believed passionately in what we did. Mm. So that was really, really helpful. And we also had a really strong culture. I mean, you know, remote working these days, virtual working is, is very, very common. Back then, it wasn't so common. And I remember, you know, our, our head of product, who was in the UK, and he said, you know, do you mind if I come out and like to try surfing for six months? I could live a year, we've worked on this. I was like, sure. And he ended up staying for six years. So we had this... We had this culture that was very warm, very friendly. We were all motivated by, by a higher purpose. Mm. And we also had a hell of a lot of fun. So I think I definitely felt that my strength was in creating a, a culture that people enjoyed. And our culture was definitely, it's fun, it's friendly, and we're doing good. Back then, and I still think today, that's quite rare yeah. to find. And it's still alive and kicking today in the company, even though you know I'm not there anymore. The culture is there and it's ingrained and it's incredibly attractive to people. And I miss it. Mm. I miss being part of that culture. And so how did you create a new company culture in A Virtual? So with A Virtual, it's quite difficult because all of, all of our team pretty much work from home. Right. Um, so we have 90, 90 people work from home. So we've got a team of virtual assistants and they've got a whole variety of skills. And I believe the culture always starts with the founder, the owner. How you behave sets the culture. I passionately believe that. So you need to be very aware of your faults and what they are, and you need to try and limit them, and you need to kind of work on your most positive attributes. I know I'm very optimistic. I have high energy, so I I think I bring that. I also know that I'm fairly relaxed. I'm definitely impatient, and I get distracted. So I always call my team up on that to make sure that they push back on me on those types of things. But ultimately, you know, it's about walking the talk. You know, you need to you need to prove that as the, the leader of a business that you you are the culture. Um, you can say what you want. It's how you behave. Yeah. It's, it's very much like I know you have children and it's very much I'm not saying my employees are children, yeah. but it's the same type of thing. You can say whatever you want. You can say whatever, say this is our culture. It's, it's rubbish. Mm. It's actually what, what is done. That is your culture. It's how you behave. And I've just always tried to be quite natural. But in terms of, you know, a virtual itself, you know, we do things because everyone works from home. One of the things I do is um, every week I call two members of staff um, just for a chat. And it seems like such a small thing. But in a company of nearly 90 to 100 people, the, I think they sound like they're very appreciative that I've taken the time to call them and say, how's it going? Mm, that's lovely. Yeah, we have, we call pods. We put everyone into pods by where they're based. And we actually, we pay them to have a monthly social where they get together in their pod in their region. And they just sit around and have coffee. And, you know, I always try and attend them if I can. So there's things that we can do. It, it is hard. But I'll tell you, you know, also you've got to understand your, your team and what they do want. Hmm. So, for example, for the last year, I've been desperately trying to come up with, you know, party, so a company um, parties or activities that will bring the whole company together. Because it's kind of weird, you know, we've got, you know, employees dotted all around, but we never kind of meet any of them. And so I've come up with ideas like, okay, let's all get together and play dodgeball. Or let's all get together and play rounders. Or let's all get together... I know this sounds quite odd, but it is actually an activity that you can do in Cape Town, which is kind of sheep wrestling, where you run around in a field and wrestle sheep. And, <laughs> and then I actually think you might 
put it on a spit and eat it afterwards. I don't know. But anyway, keep pushing all these ideas out. And just no one wanted to come. No one signed up. And then I realized this, you know, people work for us because they don't want to work in an office. They don't want to go with all the stuff that goes with it. Yes, they, they're happy to have an occasional coffee meeting once a month, but they don't want the normal company life. They don't, you know, most, most people hate company parties. You know, they hate, you know, forced fun, right? Mm. There's nothing forced fun. So I kind of accepted that. And so I guess my point is it's really about listening and understanding your team and not also trying to force culture upon them. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Also, you, there were, in your bio, it says that it's really important to sort of give them a some kind of a you put this more than equity or high salaries. It's actually the purpose and the responsibilities that they have in their job. Could you sort of elaborate on that? So I touched on upon it with GVI. With, with GVI, we make a real impact. We change lives. So, for example, at GVI, before every single meeting, we sit around and someone talks about a story that has impacted them from the work that we do. And it's amazing that you're sitting there in a marketing meeting or a sales meeting and someone says, you know, I just heard from our water sanitation project in India that we've now supplied, you know, 300 homes with clean water. This is going to save lives. You know, what you do saves lives. That's incredibly motivating, and it's very, very powerful. In fact, I was reading a, an article the other day, and there's a great quote that says, if you're building a ship, don't go out and hire new people, you know, carpenters and things like that. Just teach your team to yearn for the sea. Hmm. And yeah. I guess that's what you're saying. That's what I'm trying to say is it, it's about trying to think what is your higher purpose and what are you trying to achieve? And with GDI, it's very, very simple. With a virtual, it's slightly different because – our high purpose, yes, is to give our clients back more time, um, which is very valuable. But these are, you know, our clients are all entrepreneurs. They're successful businesses or businesses that are starting out. So it would be difficult for me to sit here and say, you know, the purpose of the company is to help all these poor entrepreneurs. I mean, that doesn't really yeah. ring. Yeah. So actually, what we found is that our purpose is to create a community that allows our team to work well, to work from home, to be supported, to have good jobs that allow them to spend time with their family. And I'm, I passionately believe that most, most kind of visions that entrepreneurs use to get their team motivated are all about the use of their product or their service. Our actual vision is about the community that we're creating for our staff. And if we create that and we do it very, very well, then we're going to have a bunch of really engaged happy employees that want to stay and then do good work and then the business benefits yeah that's so that's amazing. so that's what we're doing there that's wonderful actually sort of changing the whole perspective yes from a sort of client-based perspective to a community-based perspective that's really really interesting that's excellent and um in terms of being an entrepreneur a successful one what kind of a mindset do you have to have so i'm a, I'm a member of an entrepreneurs group called eo which is world's largest entrepreneurs organization um it's got twelve thousand members and i go to a lot of meetings i'm heavily involved in, and we talk about this stuff all the time we have a lot of meetings and guest speakers or you know what makes a successful entrepreneur what is the best mindset to have i truly truly believe it's about not giving up mm. i honestly believe that it's just about keep going to the bitter end if you really i mean obviously sometimes you've got to walk away otherwise you're going to bankrupt yourself and kill your family but 
I cannot tell you how many times I've been hours away from bankruptcy and just stuff happens, you know. So that just sheer determination. Yeah. Keep going. And when everyone is falling around you saying no, and not just to keep going, but to keep going with a positive attitude. And to come into the office when you are in deep trouble and you don't know how you're going to make the next payroll and you have no idea how things are going to go, to actually walk in with a big smile on your face and act like everything's okay so your team go out there and motivate and do good work, that I think is the most important mindset to have as an entrepreneur. That is really, really good advice. That's amazing. And it's the first time I've sort of heard that kind of a sort of mindset, that smile even though that you don't know whether you're going to get the payroll kind of thing is really really important and has so much impact that's great great advice in terms of mentors because you were saying that it's really important to find mentors how do you go about recruiting or finding them in the first place what's the method as i mentioned just earlier um there are a lot of support structures now available for entrepreneurs i would highly recommend any entrepreneur listing or would-be entrepreneur that first thing you do is look at joining one of these organizations. I was very skeptical until about five years ago. I only joined five years ago. And I wonder if my 21-year-old entrepreneurial self would have, would have done so. I doubt it. But, you know, there is so much wisdom out there. And the weird thing is entrepreneurs are the most helpful people. You just have to ask. Just ask for help. You'll be astounded by how many people are willing to help. It's mind-blowing. So. One, just ask. <laughs> but you've got, to, you've, you've got to ask the right people. So you've got to expand your network. And that's what I meant about joining one of these organizations. You've got to, that will start expanding your network. And then you can start, start, you know, sussing people out and seeing what type of person's right for you. It can be very tempting to go for the most successful person in the room or in your network as your, as your mentor. I don't think that's always right. I think it can be very tempting to go for the person within your industry. I also don't think that's right. I think what's more important is going for someone who fits your own personal values, who understands the way that you want to live your life. I think that's key. Otherwise, you might be persuaded or swayed to go in a, in a direction that goes against how you want to live your life and run your business. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really good advice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing it. <laughs> and so you go to these events, you find, you sort of make contacts and everything, but would a mentor kind of make you pay for his time or is that mostly sort of, sort of friendly, having a coffee, chat, conversation, something? No, so not at all. So the way that, as far as I understand it, the, the way that most of these kind of mentorship um, agreements kind of work is that, they're definitely unpaid. There is a blurred line between kind of mentors and advisors and business coaches. But if we're just talking about mentors, then no, it's unpaid. What I would recommend to anyone is that if you are the mentee, it is your responsibility to, to organize it. It is your responsibility to, I would just say, you meet once a month, you pay for lunch. The key thing is to come with an agenda. To, and that you can send to your mentor a week you know, in advance. Say, this is what I'm coming for. This is where I am. This is where I need help on. So it's a little bit more structured. So you're, you're making it as easy as possible for the mentor. Yeah, and, and really that's it. And also, I think, don't be afraid to, I was going to say sack your mentor. That's the, that, that, that sounds a bit aggressive. But if it's not right for you, walk away. Mm. Find someone else. Um, they won't mind. You know, they, we're all grown-ups. We understand that it's, it's about a you know, meeting of minds more than anything else. So be picky. But yeah, you'll get as much 
into it, from it as you put into it. Yeah. So don't just go along and sit there and expect to hear pearls of wisdom. Yeah. You know, almost keep a diary of, you know, issues that you've had over the last month, you know, challenges that you've faced, um, problems that you've done, you know, big decisions that you've made and, and run those by your mentor. That would probably be a good way of doing it. Okay, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for this advice. And it really is important to also, I know as an entrepreneur, it can get super lonely and you're in your own thoughts and it goes, your head goes spinning and you just don't find any issues and actually to have a person who's on the outside to actually help you out in some certain times and answer questions is really, really helpful. So yeah, definitely. No, it gets, it gets very lonely, very, very, very lonely. And sometimes it's really only entrepreneurs who understand what each other go through, um, which is actually why they're so helpful, as I said earlier, because we, we get it, we know, and we want to help you. <laughs> we, and we need the help. We all need it. Absolutely. Well, I guess we could sort of move on to your surfing story. So how actually did you learn to surf? As I said, so uh, it was the Costa Rica health scare. So we moved out to Costa Rica. I was 30 years old. I'd probably surfed five times before. I think I surfed my first ever surf was with my granny in Cornwall on one of those white kind of styrofoam boards. You remember? You remember those things? Yes. I mean, thank God they don't exist anymore. They're kind of polluting the sea. But it was, and they would kind of break on that, you know, any kind of you know, reasonably heavy wave would kind of snap it in two. But I remember doing that, and I remember absolutely loving it. But I was brought up in Cambridge, so kind of landlocked and pretty much never saw the sea again. But every, every now and again, when I was lucky enough to see waves, I was always immediately just naturally drawn to it. And, feel, and I've always loved the ocean and do a lot of other activities in the ocean as well. But as I said, I've got a very understanding wife, and we moved there. And so I arrived in Costa Rica, didn't get any surf lessons. <laughs> I, don't, I, I honestly don't, you know, know what the general kind of rule is, whether you should or you shouldn't, but it didn't seem too complicated to me. I'm probably, you know, probably, I think people probably would laugh at my style now, so maybe that would have helped. And, yeah, I got myself a good old longboard and started paddling out. But to be quite honest with you, for the first six months, it was actually just about fitness. I was so overweight, so unfit, so unhealthy. And I, would, I remember I'd go out, I'd surf for half an hour, I'd come back and just lie, lie on the beach like a beach whale, just kind of lying there just panting and then I'd go back out again. But I will never forget, you know, that kind of catching that first kind of blue water, that unbroken yeah. wave. And it was hard. It was a hard slog. You often wonder why the hell people become surfers because it takes so long. And it took me a long time. It took me six, nine months until I probably caught a two to three foot. Well, and I don't remember the exact time. I remember exactly where it was. It was in a place called Nasara in Costa Rica. And it was probably a, a three-foot wave. Went out with a friend who was a good surfer, and he just said, paddle, paddle, paddle. I, and I had a kind of, by then, I was down to like a six, eight kind of fun board or something. And I just dropped in, and I just remember, you know, I'm sure you're the same. If yeah. I shut my eyes, I can see the whole thing. It's, it'll be imprinted there for the rest of my life in my mind. And I just flew down the line, and it was just, wave was just there, just by my head. And so it was hard work until that point. But I guess something inside of me told me that it was going to be worth it. And then after that, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> and then I was probably hooked. And then it was, you know, I was very lucky. As I said, I was in the water three to four hours a day, every day for eight years. So I managed to, you know, become reasonably comfortable in, in the water. Yeah. And I did start late. And I, I often joke that I'm pleased I started late. 
because otherwise I'm convinced I'd be living in a hut, single, in Bali or something, and wondering how to my next meal. <laughs> and, you know, my surfing's changed now. You know, I live in Cape Town. We've got great waves around here. Um, really, really good. It's, it's so uncrowded, it's unbelievable. Yeah. What about the sharks over there? I mean, I know it's a cliche, but are there really a lot of sharks in the water in Cape Town? Well, yeah, there are, yes. I mean, there are a lot, but you know, stuff just doesn't happen that often. But I hope I'm not going to regret this. I'm kind of pleased they're there because, you know, a lot of the time I'm pleading with people to come with me for a surf because I don't want to be the only person. <laughs> I mean, it's quite weird to be near a city like Cape Town and, you know, any time during the, the week I can go down to Milda Beach and there'll be no one in the water. No one. And even when the waves are really good, you know, you've got maybe four to six people and everyone's really happy to see you because, <laughs> you know, it's the odds a little bit better. Sorry about that. Yes, so that you, you were saying it's quite comforting to have four or five people in the water with you. Yeah, it is. I mean, it doesn't affect me. I think I saw one when I was paddleboarding once in Musenberg. I saw one when I was freediving crayfish in the nature reserve, which was quite scary. But it didn't, you know, it just didn't pay me any interest. I mean, the fact is, if you're surfing here, there, there are a lot of sharks. And I will guarantee that if you surf here for a year, you know, a couple of times, they would have been around and probably yeah. swam under you. They have no interest in us, none. It is far more dangerous to ride your, your bike on the road here. Like 50 times more dangerous, 100 times more dangerous. <laughs> but it's the cold, actually, which gets you down here because it's quite, it's quite weird. It can be like 35 degrees and you have to go into the water and it's, it's just bone chilly, you know. Really? And that's kind, of, that's kind of quite weird. So <laughs> I have my annual pilgrimage to the Maldives, which, which I love and kind of keeps me fit and training for. That's brilliant. I like going there because it seems that most people who go there seem to be kind of, you know, 40 plus. So, you know, the thought of going to Ipo and, you know, competing with 20-year-old Australians is kind of not my idea of fun. <laughs> so the more, I'm happy with Cape Town and the Maldives. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I guess we're sort of arriving at the end of this interview that's been so helpful and so inspiring for businessmen and for entrepreneurs. And I just sort of have four sentences that I like to ask my guests to finish. So the first one is, I love. I love being underwater in the kelp forests of Cape Town. I miss. I hate to say it, but I really miss Costa Rica. <laughs> I miss the warm water. Lovely. I wish. I wish I'd taken up yoga five years ago. And the last one is, I want. I'm not pretending to struggle with this question, but I'm very content. I mean, there's the, I don't want for much. Okay. I want really, really good waves for my next trip to the Maldives. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Just before we wrap things up, do you have any sort of books or podcasts that you like to listen to that actually sort of help you out as well, being an entrepreneur and a successful one? So I'm a really big fan of the book Scaling Up by Bernard Harnesh. So he's the founder of the of EO, the entrepreneurs organization I was talking about. And they also have some very good podcasts within that network. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that. I really like Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, who's the founder of Zappos. Yeah. I remember reading that. It's an old book, uh, so that maybe 15 years ago. He kind of made me realize that what I was doing at GVI was right. It was all about culture and values and things like that. So that's great. There's so many. And podcasts, in terms of business, um, Stanford University have the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Program, and they have some really 
good ones, amazing kind of guest speakers there, kind of heads of titans of industry and all that kind of stuff, which is quite cool. So listen to those. Okay, that's brilliant. That's really great advice. Well, we'll put all these uh, links in the show notes of this episode so the, the listeners can, uh, can actually sort of connect. So I guess we've made it. How do you feel? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's quite therapeutic, I think, talking about your life's journey, particularly if you're relatively happy with where you've ended up. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And I guess the last sort of thing is to share your socials. Where can we get hold of you or, or your businesses, how to get hold of you and to join or to hire a virtual assistant? Yeah. So easiest thing is just to type in a virtual into Google and you'll come up with all of our kind of socials and you can see our reviews and our website and all that type of thing. So we're on LinkedIn. Um, so hashtag a virtual Twitter Mainly it's actually, so again, hashtag a virtual, or if you want to look at me, it's hashtag RWGDI. Yeah, those are our main platforms. But yeah, if anyone is interested, come and speak to the team and see how getting a virtual assistant might help you get in the water more. Exactly. Yes, that was the last question. That was the last question I was going to ask. How often do you get to surf now in Cape Town? So hopefully members of my team aren't listening to this. I don't know, three <laughs> Three to four, three to four times a week. So I should say I'm very lucky now. I've got a nine-year-old son who is utterly obsessed with surfing. So weekends, my wife is more than happy for me. I mean, we literally just go Saturday and Sunday. We're gone and we're in the ocean for three to four hours because I'm going with him. It's loud. I think yeah. it was by myself. It would be a different matter. <laughs> that's brilliant well thank you thank you Richard for being such an inspiring guest and such an awesome guest and sort of sharing your insights on having on being an entrepreneur thank you well thank you thank you very much for having <laughs> I'll speak to you soon thank you cheers bye bye that was a super inspiring conversation Richard has been in all sorts of podcasts, including the Financial Times' podcast, so I feel very privileged that he cared to drop in on the Ocean Riders podcast for a chat. I'm really grateful Richard took the time for this chat because I actually personally found it very thought-provoking. And in fact, whilst doing my research, I was also reminded of the extraordinary compound effect a virtual assistant can have on your business. So I really do urge you to find your own virtual assistant by skipping over to Richard's website at www.avirtual.co.uk. In any case, links to it are in the show notes of the episode. I apologise for the fluky internet connection, but for the past few weeks, traditional broadcasters are saying, hey, we can't make high quality shows from home. And indie podcasters for the past 15 years, like us, like me and other fellow podcasters are saying, hold my beer. Anyway, if you enjoy this podcast and it's livening up your quarantine days, please hit the subscribe button, share it with your friends and family. And these are the best things you can do actually to help me grow my podcast. You can always join us on the Ocean Riders Facebook group. It's called the Ocean Riders Community and links to it are in the show notes, as I'm sure your stoke will be contagious and help us all lift our minds. Share your tips for staying fit, cook slams, favourite photos, job offers, advertise your business, you name it, you're welcome on the Ocean Riders community. You can also support my podcast by skipping over to my website, theoceanriderspodcastallinoneword.com, where you'll find the back catalogue of episodes, blog articles, photos and videos of my guests. So don't hesitate also to sign up to the newsletter that'll pop up 
To be honest, I haven't had time to make a, a newsletter yet, but when I do, I promise it will be awesome. I would also have suggested to having a look at my online merch shop, theoceanridersshop.com, but with the coronavirus, everything is on a complete halt and nothing is going through the post. So we can look into that on a next episode. So you can skip over to Facebook at the Ocean Riders Podcast, Instagram at the Ocean Riders Podcast and Twitter at Imi Podcast. And you can follow me and that would really make my day. Anyway, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the collaboration of my awesome podcast editor, Leng Inke, who puts together the podcast and creates the show notes. Thank you, Richard, for being my guest today. I have learned so much. And last but not least, thank you for listening until the end. You guys are simply awesome. Until next episode, stay safe, stay at home and only enjoy the waves if you're allowed to get out. Ciao.